Alexa, open the pod bay doors. I'm sorry, Todd. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. It is our periodic check-in with The Final Frontier today. We're going to be talking about space and the future of commercial space travel, and even Alexa with Alan Boyle, GeekWire contributing editor on this episode. Alan, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. You've been covering some fascinating topics lately, and and coming up, I want to chat about your look ahead to the year in space 2022. But first off, Alexa is going to space. And by the way, every time I'm saying that, the device on my table is being triggered. So maybe I should stop that. But I don't know that one. <laughs> there she goes. But in fact, she is headed out on a Orion deep space capsule for the Artemis one around the moon mission. Alan, this was interesting in part because of the origins of Alexa and the inspiration that Amazon originally had for this voice assistant. Can you fill us in on what Alexa is going to be doing in space? Well, it's part of an experiment called Callisto, which actually originated with Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin is the prime contractor for the Orion deep space capsule, which is being used in the Artemis moon missions. And uh, the folks at Lockheed Martin thought it would be cool to have voice available on the capsule. The guy from Lockheed Martin told me that we build a lot of airplanes and they all have voice. So we just thought it was kind of weird that the spacecraft that we build don't. And so they looked into it and they figured out that they needed a couple of partners and Amazon is one of those partners. The other is Cisco, which provides the WebEx video conferencing platform. And so Callisto is kind of an alien hybrid that uses the Amazon Alexa uh, software and hardware. In fact, there's the glowing blue ring on this console that they created for Callisto. So this is something that they're going to test on Artemis 1, the the first time that they launch the Space Launch System rocket, and it'll be an around-the-moon test of the Orion spacecraft that will last for several weeks. Alexa will be speaking up every once in a while as part of that test. This is important in part because a lot of the missions lately have been to low Earth orbit, not back to the moon. And so you're going to get this test of technology in a deployment that's much further out into space if you're talking about the moon. For people who have not been following Artemis 1, can you give us the basics on what that is and how it's going to work and when it's going to happen? This is an uncrewed test mission. There will be no astronauts aboard the spacecraft. In fact, Alexa might be the only voice that you hear that actually originates from the spacecraft. And this flight will go beyond the moon. It's going to orbit the moon in a special lunar orbit and uh, go beyond the moon and then come back. And and it's supposed to test all the systems for Artemis II, which is going to be the mission where astronauts will basically trace a similar trajectory. And then Artemis III, which is now scheduled for no earlier than 2025, is going to be the one where astronauts actually land on the moon. Now, Artemis I has been delayed multiple times during its development because it's kind of a complex mission and especially the rocket, the space launch system, 
rocket has not been launched before. And so they need to make sure that everything is working with that. And so the latest thinking is that it might be March, it might be April, it might be May, it might be later because they have uh, rehearsals that they need to do. And, and based on those rehearsals, they'll be able to figure out what the timeline is. But it's a good bet that it's going to happen this year sometime. So it's uncrewed. So this is not going to be a situation where the crews will be on board speaking with Amazon's voice assistant, but right. they'll be testing that capability effectively. Right. They'll have a team of what they call virtual astronauts at Mission Control in Houston. And so these people will be communicating with Alexa, asking questions as if they were on board the spacecraft, and then Alexa will answer. They do have a script of test questions that they're going to choose from, but the virtual astronauts will be able to kind of choose what they want to talk about. They might improvise a little bit, and uh, there might be some celebrities who are involved in the virtual astronaut team, but we, we don't know who they're going to be yet. Was this part of the mission that Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin was bidding for in terms of the moon? Or is this separate from the actual lunar landing that Blue Origin bid for? Right. This is completely separate. It's completely separate that this is something that's long been planned. Blue Origin is not involved. SpaceX is not involved. Uh, on the Artemis three mission, that's the one where astronauts are supposed to land on the moon. That's the contract that Blue Origin and its partners and SpaceX were bidding for, and SpaceX got that contract. And so if everything works out the way it's currently planned, the astronauts would be launched in an Orion capsule by SLS, and then they would rendezvous in the vicinity of the moon with the SpaceX Starship. And the SpaceX Starship would serve as the lunar lander, making the landing on the surface and then coming back up to transfer the crew back to the Orion. And there's a lot that could change about that in the next couple of years, but that's the current plan. In terms of the Artemis One, one of the points that you make in your story about this, which we'll link to from the show notes, is that there will be moments of limited or, or no connectivity. And that's one of the ideas here is to test Alexa's capabilities in those environments. And it's really also a good case study for earthbound cloud computing because this concept of the edge, this concept of computing taking place in situations where there's limited or no connectivity is very important for business as well. How will that play out in terms of the mission with Artemis One? Well, Alexa already has that capability of local voice control. If you lose connectivity, there are still some things that you can do with Alexa. And so they just wanted to make sure that they built that capability into Callisto, this console that incorporates Alexa. So it's more a question of uh, adjusting Alexa's current capabilities rather than necessarily coming up with a new capability. An another thing that they had to deal with was the acoustics in the Orion capsule. Usually Alexa is in a living room or an office where the acoustics are different and you don't have so much echoing and you don't have so much noise. And so they had to tweak the voice recognition software so that Alexa was more tuned into what it would be hearing when it's in a confined space like Orion's capsule. And this all applies, as you say, as well to earthly applications. Uh, 
especially cars. When Alexa is put into cars, uh, you may not have continuous internet connectivity. People talk about the connected car, but there's going to be dropouts. And so you have to deal with that. And again, you have maybe a confined space with different acoustics. And so Amazon has already done some work to adjust what Alexa hears and what it does in uh, an automobile. But uh, this will kind of help with that challenge. I alluded to this at the beginning, but it's interesting in part because Amazon's inspiration for Alexa in the first place was the Star Trek computer. So here you have this coming full circle in some ways. Yeah, I'm glad that you came back to that, that Jeff Bezos, as you know, is a big Star Trek fan. In fact, he played a cameo role in one of the Star Trek movies. And so uh, when he and uh, other folks at Amazon were trying to come up with Alexa, they really did have that computer in mind from Star Trek, the one that had a woman's voice and, and you could talk to it and, and order your Earl Grey hot or whatever else on board. And so it is a case of uh, things coming full circle and Alexa is finally going into space like its inspiration on Star Trek. Well, on this topic, the intersection of science fiction and science and space, I do want to point out, Alan has a fantastic podcast of his own that I'd encourage everybody to sign up for. It's the Fiction Science Podcast. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And Alan's got some great guests, including just recently, someone who was a subject of our most recent GeekWire trivia contest, Neil Stevenson, uh, and his book, Snow Crash, and the whole way that it essentially coined the phrase metaverse. You had Neil on one of your recent episodes. Right. By the way, you mentioned in your GeekWire coverage of this Alexa story that this was reminiscent in some ways of HAL uh, from uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And so in honor of that reference, Alan, I took some time and I used, uh, well, let's, let me just show you what I did. Alexa, open the pod bay doors. I'm sorry, Todd. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> There's this great service called Alexa Blueprints that you can use that allows you to basically make Alexa say whatever you want in response to any prompt. So there you are. That's my 2001 homage. Yeah, let, let's try this with my uh, Alexa here at home. Echo, open the pod bay doors. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Also, I'm not Hal, and we're not in space. So that is built in. You didn't even have to do a blueprint for that. Exactly. I did it uh, purely to make her say my name instead. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to say, Alexa, take me to the moon, uh, you would get a preview of all the information that you can hear about Artemis. And you can even sign up for a reminder for Alexa to tell you when the Artemis One mission is going to occur when they schedule it. For the first time in 50 years, NASA will be returning to the moon with Artemis One. I'll be on board for the journey to test out how I can make astronauts' jobs easier and more enjoyable on future missions. So that's something that folks might want to try also. I love it because if you were to say, instead, fly me to the moon, you might end up with a song instead, right? That's true. That's <laughs> true. It puts you in touch with Amazon Music. <laughs> So it's take me to the moon, and that'll trigger that. That's correct. Let's talk next about what's coming up in space. That's Around the Corner on GeekWire. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. 
Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm here with GeekWire contributing editor, Alan Boyle. Alan is a longtime space and science reporter. You can find his work on GeekWire and also at CosmicLog.com in addition to his fiction science podcast. Alan, you wrote in your year in review for space and your preview of the year ahead that you've been doing these look backs and look forwards for, for many years and Waiting 25 years, yeah. Wow, yes, and and waiting for the time when it would be the year of commercial space finally arriving. You write that it finally did arrive in 2021. What were the key milestones from your perspective? Well, actually, people talk about SpaceX and Virgin Galactic, and those were very notable. They both had commercial space flights of note, but I highlight Blue Origin, and not just because Blue Origin is based in the Seattle area, but also because Blue Origin had the first paying customer on board its first flight in July. That was uh, Oliver Damon, this Dutch teenager whose family paid a large sum. We don't know if it's hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, but he was the first person to, to fly on a paid ticket. Later in September, we had a billionaire named Jared Isaacman who paid millions of dollars to fly himself and uh, three other people into space as part of this philanthropic Inspiration4 mission. And so that was the second instance where you had a paying customer. And so those are the two big ones uh, as far as I'm concerned. Now, Virgin Galactic beat both of those companies to the punch when they flew Richard Branson, the billionaire founder, just days before Jeff Bezos flew. But Richard Branson was considered officially part of the crew. And so he was not a paying passenger unless you consider the fact that, you know, he is footing some of the bill just out of his capacity as an owner of the business. It's publicly owned, but he still owns a stake in the company. So that's a technical way of saying that Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin, I think, do merit a line in the space history books for the dawn of the commercial spaceflight era. Why did that matter? Why did the fact that it was a paying customer matter? And, and what did that moment mean in, in the larger evolution of commercial space? Well, it shows that People are willing, we, we kind of know this from the polls, that people are willing to pay to, to take a space flight. And uh, it, it's like that old joke uh, about the madams and the prostitution businesses that uh, now we know that you're selling something. Now the only question is how much are you selling it for? And so that is uh, what we know about the spaceflight business now. And in fact, there was a crypto entrepreneur named Justin Sun who revealed himself as the person who paid $28 million to take a flight on a future Blue Origin spacecraft. And so we know that the 
price can be quite high. And so it, now it's a question of how the market is going to develop and how the price is going to come down and make it more affordable for the rest of us. That's kind of the way things work with these sorts of technologies. And, and then the applications follow what people are going to be able to do when they do get into space. And so in a sense, I, I think this is one small but expensive step that leads to a giant leap in how outer space is used. There was a lot of skepticism in the popular press on social media about the amount of capital that went toward these launches and questions about the significance of them in the overall evolution of humanity. What are your thoughts on that, Alan, to the extent that you feel comfortable sharing your perspective? Why does this matter big picture for people to start getting into space tourism and for everyday citizens to be able to launch into orbit? That is a big point of debate. People talked about the carbon footprint of spaceflight and whether we should be paying to solve the issue of homelessness and world hunger and environmental degradation and uh, what to do about climate change. And, and I think those are all higher priority issues now. I'm not one of those people who thinks, oh man, our future is in space. We're going to get off this rock and and uh, let's just just do it and let's build that city on Mars, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't know if that is something that we need to be really focusing on more than dealing with climate change, for example. But I think long-term, if you think about what's going to be happening thousands of years or tens of thousands of years from now, it, it's an issue that we do have to address one way or the other, is how are we going to have routine access beyond Earth? I think that Earth will always be our home, and uh, we want to make sure that we take care of it, but we do have to start somewhere when we're talking about uh, going out and expanding the frontier, whether it's 10 years from now or 100 or 1,000 years from now, and so might as well get started on it. Don't spend a whole lot of money on it, you know, uh, even if Jeff Bezos is spending a billion dollars a year, that's still a drop in the bucket when you consider how many trillions of dollars are being spent on other challenges that face us. I, I think about it as kind of looking in the rearview mirror <laughs> to see what's catching up with you and, and kind of know where you are in the wider environment. And you don't spend a whole lot of time looking in the rearview mirror when you're driving your car, but it's something that you can't ignore. And so in the big picture, I think that uh, spaceflight is in a similar situation that you don't want to make it the top priority, but you don't want to just brush it aside either. So next steps beyond orbit would be the moon and then Mars. Starting with the moon, obviously Jeff Bezos, as we've talked about on this show and even featured an interview with you and Jeff Bezos about this on stage at an event a few years ago, they aspire to get to the moon. Blue Origin aspires to get to the moon and to take humanity there. SpaceX ended up winning NASA's lunar lander contract. Where does that leave Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin? 
Well, it doesn't leave them in the position that they hoped to be in a year ago, but uh, they are continuing studies with NASA support to build a lunar lander, and they are also working on a new type of space station known as Orbital Reef in partnership with uh, several other groups, including uh, Sierra Space. And so they didn't win this contract, but I don't think that that has crossed, you know, the aspirations to get to the moon, to get to Earth orbit and beyond, that hasn't crossed those aspirations off their list. And so they'll continue work on that. And and you may see more uh, reports about who's getting how much for future contracts and, and maybe Blue Origin will be in on that. But uh, when we're talking about what might happen in the next year, the big thing is Blue Origin really finishing their work on a next generation engine called the BE-4 and being able to introduce an orbital class rocket known as New Glenn into service. And that's a big question to mark whether they'll be able to get that done by the end of the year, but, but that's definitely a top priority item on Blue Origin's list for 2022. And then Elon Musk and SpaceX seem to value Mars much more than they value the moon, at least if you read Elon Musk's tweets over the years, mm-hmm. is that still a realistic goal for them, given now that they're going to be helping NASA get to the moon? I think in that case, the contract for a lunar lander version of Starship uh, furthers SpaceX's Uh, larger aspirations. And so it's always good to have somebody else paying for some of your development work. And as long as it's on the, basically the critical path for getting to Mars, I think uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX are very happy to be able to help NASA get to the moon. And Elon has said, this is the 21st century, we really need to have a moon base by now. And so he just sees it as part of that larger movement of the species beyond Earth. And so it's on the agenda, but it's not the final item on the agenda, that's for sure. And speaking of Starship, 2022 is a year when a lot of people expect Starship to be able to go into orbit for its first orbital test. And, and uh, people have talked about sending a Japanese billionaire and some of his friends around the moon in 2023. And so uh, SpaceX has got to think that this is going to be a very big year for Starship. And we already mentioned Space Launch System for NASA and Blue Origin for its new Glenn rocket. So this could be the year of big rockets. And Starship is the rocket that will eventually get SpaceX to Mars. Yes, that's correct. That's the plan. That Starship is like the Swiss army knife of of rockets. It's big enough that it can handle any application, including disgorging hundreds of Starlink satellites into Earth orbit or point-to-point travel. You know, if you want to go from Seattle to Singapore in not very long, you know, maybe a matter of minutes rather than hours, you would take a starship and it could go to Mars, it could go to Europa. Uh, It's big enough to handle everything. And the idea is that 
because it's fully reusable, it would be cheap enough for all these applications rather than trying to have different rockets for different applications. You mentioned Starlink, and that is SpaceX's uh, satellite broadband venture, which is headquartered out of Redmond, Washington, near us. I'm excited, Alan. My Starlink setup is waiting for me at my parents' house in rural California, so I'm going to be testing that out from there. Yeah, I'll look forward to that and look yeah. forward to a user's report. Maybe we could jump back on the podcast uh, via Starlink. and uh, Exactly. <laughs> you could tune in via Starlink. Uh, I, I know several people who are using Starlink, and, and the application for uh, rural areas is really the, you know, that's the top kind of use case for, for Starlink. And, and right now, as you know, it's in a limited release, but they're widening the release. And in fact, uh, even as we speak, uh, SpaceX is about to launch more Starlink satellites. And so they'll continue to beef up the coverage as the year goes on. And of course, Amazon's project Kuiper is going to compete with that eventually. But the short-term development selfishly that I'm really hoping for, Alan, is mobility of the Starlink base station. I know Elon has said that's coming in the future. And I think what you just referenced in terms of them launching more satellites is a step toward enabling that broader coverage that would allow people to move the Starlink receiver from a fixed location. Because right, right now they make it clear when you enter your address <laughs> into that form, that's where you're going to be using it, buddy. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that that will require further authorization from the FCC. Oh. And so SpaceX okay. is already applying for that authorization. And that is the next step. And a, a lot of folks are looking forward to that, including probably folks at Chimeta, which is the local flat panel antenna company that they have been working with Starlink and other companies like uh, OneWeb. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they're talking with folks at Project Kuiper as well about having mobile applications for internet connectivity via satellites in low Earth orbit. They already do it with geosynchronous satellites, but low Earth orbit satellites uh, offer some advantages just in terms of latency what would you leave us with for 2022? Big picture, what can we expect in the broader universe of space? Well, there is a lot of commercial activity. A lot of people uh, are starting up space companies. Uh, Stoke Space, which is a local company, is getting more support. So people will probably be hearing a lot more about space startups and, and the plans that they have. And if we're lucky, some of those plans might actually bear fruit in 2022. So stay tuned. I'm excited about the Webb Telescope and the launch of that, which is another a whole other topic. And one of my questions for you on that was whether that could provide business opportunities for folks back here on Earth, not to be uh, too crass about it, because I think we're going to be able to see deeper into the universe than we ever have with that. But I'd be curious here what, what your thoughts are on the opportunities for humanity and also for business from the, the James Webb Telescope? Well, I think the James Webb Space Telescope is in the same class as the Hubble Telescope, that you don't really hear a lot of people saying, well, what's the business case for <laughs> the Hubble Space Telescope? True. It's just the discovery and uh, understanding more about what our, our universe is. There might be a lot of uh, t-shirt sales and uh, poster sales with James Webb imagery, so I imagine that's the 
the sort of thing uh, you can look forward to. And, and then there's another development that NASA recently launched a mission called the Double Asteroid Redirection Mission DART that will send a spacecraft slamming into a small asteroid in September. And what scientists learn from that may help keep us alive if we have a big space rock coming in our direction as portrayed in the movie, Don't Look Up. This might provide some strategies for doing it where we don't have to depend on Leo DiCaprio to, <laughs> to solve the problem for us. By the way, the other fascinating thing about this whole race over the past year was the marketing and public relations and entertainment value of it. We just got finished in my house watching the Netflix documentary on the SpaceX Inspiration4 launch, which was fascinating. I know Amazon had its own Shatner. Shatner in space. Exactly, on, yeah. on Amazon mm -hmm. Prime. Um, is there one perhaps underrated documentary or, or movie that, that you've seen that you would recommend to folks? Well, if people have Apple TV, uh, there's a series for all mankind that really sketches an alternate timeline for the space effort. And, and that's really an interesting, it, it's not a documentary uh, by any means. It, it really proposes that the Soviets got to the moon first and that caused NASA to to uh, take the space effort in a different direction and get women involved. And it's not anything like uh, Netflix's Countdown documentary or Shatner in Space, but uh, if you want to kind of get a sense of the feel of spaceflight, especially in those pioneering days, uh, that would be a fun one to watch. Alan Boyle, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Alan Boyle is a longtime space and science reporter and a contributing editor at GeekWire. You can also find his work at CosmicLog.com and subscribe to his podcast, Fiction Science. We will be right back with a very different topic. Gordon Ramsay, Celebrity Chef, and Amazon's Twitch. Welcome back to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. My colleague John Cook is stuck somewhere in the southern United States attempting still to return from his holiday break, so he will be joining us next week. In the meantime, I'm pleased to be joined by Kurt Milton, editor and producer of the GeekWire podcast. Hello, Kurt. Hey, Todd. It's great to be back on the show. Absolutely. Well, we had a great discussion with Alan Boyle about space. I wanted to bring you on to talk about another of my favorite topics, and that is reality TV competitions, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> this is the burning issue of our time, as we all know. Well, I bring it up now because we started watching in my household a fascinating show this past week. Yes, believe it or not, Gordon Ramsay, the celebrity chef, has a new show. I, how many shows does this guy need? It's endless. I, I was doing some research before this segment, and I, I didn't even know all these shows. And I've seen some of them, but they go on and on and on. He's How does he have time to cook? Exactly. Well, the new one is on Fox. It's called Next Level Chef. And I have not watched the entire Gordon Ramsay catalog, but I have to say, I really like this one. It's got a good setup. I won't spoil it for folks out there, but essentially there are three levels of a structure that the 
different groups of chefs move among depending on how well they do. And the basement is hilarious. It's like worse than your grandma's kitchen. <laughs> so it's a good show. But there was one moment, Kurt, that caught my attention that I wanted to share with you here. Here is Gordon Ramsay interacting on this show with one of the contestants. Step forward, whoever cooked those scallops. First name? Trisha. What do you do for a living? Uh, I stream on Twitch, my cooking chef. What the f is Twitch? <laughs> All right, so Gordon Ramsay has no idea, in certain terms, what Amazon's Twitch is. This was fascinating to me, Kurt. Amazon bought Twitch for almost a billion dollars, and here you have one of the more influential media figures out there who, ostensibly at least, I don't know, maybe he was playing a bit of a character there, but ostensibly, at least, he did not know what Twitch was. You have to remember, yes, he's always playing Gordon Ramsay, and he's kind of curmudgeonly and obscene occasionally and rude. So that may have been, yeah, occasionally, <laughs> more than occasionally. So this may have been, you know, how genuine was it? But still, you would think he might know something about this. Get out of the kitchen, Gordon. Here you have an emblem of traditional media, broadcast television. Sure, you can watch his shows on Hulu, but these things are really targeted toward the living room TV coming in over a traditional network. And then you have on this show quite a few social media cooks, as they call them, folks who are on Twitch and elsewhere, who have strong followings of their own. And in that way, this seemed to me like a watershed moment, or at least something symbolic, where it was a passing of the guard from old to new media. And fittingly, as often happens in these cases, old media not even knowing it was happening. And <laughs> we we know this from the newspaper world, right? Yeah, Kurt? yeah. I remember someone I met who worked at the Washington Post years ago who had to show an editor of the feature section how to find their website online because this person <laughs> didn't know. Now, this was the mid-2000s, sure. but still. But it wouldn't surprise me if Ramsey came out of the box with a show on Twitch next year. You know, I mean, he's that kind of guy. He's adaptable. But it was just funny, and it gave people a good laugh because he was so clueless, obviously. And, and of course, it gave him a chance to drop an F-bomb. So, yes, you know, pretty good Ramsey. <laughs> exactly. Well, to your point, Kurt, I think he might be savvier, or at least his people are more savvy than he might be letting on because his Twitter bio has been changed. It now says, always near food, doesn't know what Twitch is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and like I say, he's he is very smart. He's developed this Ramsey character. He still runs a lot of restaurants, but his, I think his big thing is on television. And it's it plays really well on all these different series. And it's just kind of him doing this his his thing as Gordon Ramsey. So who knows what he might come up with? He could maybe a video game, Todd. Maybe he'll come up with some sort of game. There you go. Absolutely. Food fight with Gordon Ramsay. Hey, wow. Go out and <laughs> trademark that. Geez, that's pretty good, Kurt. We will link from the show notes to that clip in case you want to relive it or watch the show 
I, I do recommend the show. And I'm actually not a huge Gordon Ramsay fan. I find stuff like MasterChef and Hell's Kitchen just a little too much for me in the evening. Mm. I've got enough people yelling at me during the day, Kurt. I don't need yeah. them doing it when I'm sitting on the couch at night. That said, I think this latest show is, is really top notch. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Todd Bishop. My colleague, John Cook, will be back with us next week. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. Kurt, thanks for jumping on. Thanks, Todd. It's great to be here as always. Be sure to subscribe to GeekWire and rate and review the show in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll talk to you next week.